I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones, and today I'm talking to Rupert Beale, clinician scientist group leader at the Francis Crick Institute, who's written a series of pieces for the LRB on COVID-19 in the two years and more since the start of the pandemic, most recently on the Omicron variant at the start of that wave. He's also a veteran of this podcast. Hello, Rupert, and thank you for finding the time to talk to us again. Hello, Tom. So we are now officially living with COVID. What does that mean? Yeah, it's a phrase I don't particularly like, um, but it's the one that seems to be popular, perhaps popularised a little bit. What it means is treating COVID as if it were more or less any of the other seasonal, usually infections that that we get with respiratory viruses. Um, uh, Veteran listeners to this podcast will have heard me talk about the four seasonal coronaviruses that we've known about for, for many years that do occasionally cause serious medical problems, but it's very rare that they cause serious medical medical problems, given that we're all infected with these, usually multiple times through our lifetime. And um, if you had been sort of betting on the idea that SARS-CoV-2 would eventually settle down to become the fifth of these seasonal coronaviruses, I think you'd be feeling that your, your bet was a pretty good one. It, it does look as though that's where we're likely to end up. I should say we're not really there yet. Um, SARS-CoV-2 is still causing substantial problems in, in, in healthcare in, in the NHS. What it's not doing is causing the same sort of uh, societal threat where a collapse in healthcare could, could have occurred had we not acted in the way that we did, um, albeit rather later than we ought to have done in, in um, putting in restrictions on mobility and so on. So we're now in a situation where what is doing the work uh, of stopping us from uh, being overwhelmed by SARS-CoV-2 is immunity. And and that is, you know, what we want. We want our immune systems to, to cope. The great majority of people who've had three vaccines and who have a normal immune system um, will only ever get very mild or, 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 or trivial disease. Um, that's not to say it's impossible that people can get you know, infected and it still be nasty. Uh, after three doses, it does occasionally happen. Um, the, the the biggest problem at the moment um, is for uh, people who are substantially immunosuppressed. For example, I've had a kidney transplant um, and they won't have mounted uh, strong immune responses necessarily to their um, uh, prescribed courses of vaccination. And um, even though the uh, Omicron variant is a, a little bit less bad 
than uh, than the previous variants. Only a little bit, it must be said. Uh, really, the the impression of so-called mildness is because of immunity. Um, you, you know, people who are substantially immunosuppressed can still get ill, and that's where in the in the developed world we're now relying on uh, antiviral drugs, so uh, antiviral uh, antibodies, for example, that neutralise the virus in the same way that your immune system would if you'd mounted a strong response to vaccination or inhibitors that have been developed of um, different um, constituents of the virus, enzymes within the virus. So that's the situation. Um, no longer um, a societal threat, no longer a threat to the integrity of healthcare, but still a substantial medical problem that, that requires sort of substantial resources to be devoted to it. And what about the question of long COVID? Yes, so... Um, Long COVID is is not a term that, you know, medics like particularly because it's quite badly defined. There's various ways you can define it. So I, I would sort of draw out three distinct types of long COVID, if, if you like. Uh, I, I don't profess to be expert in this, but, but broadly speaking, you've got long-term sequelae, long-term consequences of very severe illness. So these are people I see not infrequently in, in my clinic who, for example, in the first or second wave were hospitalized or had to go to intensive care. Um, uh, they had substantially compromised organ organs, so respiratory, uh, renal, etc. And they're left with um, long-term damage to those organs as a result of severe COVID. So that's one sort of category of so-called long COVID. That's obviously a completely different kind of category to someone who has, uh, let's say, persistent annoying symptoms. Uh, the, the most sort of prevalent one has been perhaps a little bit less with the Omicron variant, but with previous variants have been uh, loss of or alteration in sense of taste or smell. You know, that's a, 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 another sort of long-term consequence of, of, of COVID that, you know, is, is is nasty for people, but obviously is a different category from, you know, people who have essentially ended up with potentially life-limiting uh, organ dysfunction uh, as a result of very severe COVID. And then there are things like, um, you know, people who've uh, they've had COVID, They've recovered apparently, but they're left with feeling extremely tired, exhausted on, on minimal exertion. Um, there's no doubt in my mind this is a real pathophysiological phenomenon, um, at, at least for, for, for some people. There's been some interesting attempts to try to explain it. There was a, a meeting um, last month at the Microbiology Society where I had a very interesting presentation. It's unpublished, so I won't share it. Um, looking at uh, one potential mechanism that looked you know, not implausible. Um, so there'll be some more research on this. Uh, and then there's there's other stuff, which is, you know, people claiming to long have long COVID where, you know, as a doctor, one has to have a, a healthy degree of scepticism sometimes about some of the more sort of outlandish claims, uh, uh, you know, made about this. What I'm very clear on, I think we should be very clear, is that if you've had three doses of vaccine, you have a normal immune system, your chance of having any form of long COVID is also very, very greatly reduced. So we're in a completely different situation to, to where we were, you know, in, in, in March or April 2020. And does, I mean, obviously three doses of vaccine, four, as some people have had, provides that immunity and previous infection would be expected to provide some immunity as well, but maybe less than had been hoped. It does seem that people who have had, who have not been vaccinated, but have had a previous infection are more prone to reinfection that that's true actually the, the the best form of immunity if you like 
is when people have had three doses and then subsequently caught, um, you know, one of the variants of COVID. The more we, I mean, the, the way we would classify it is um, in terms of antigenic exposure. So you can be exposed to an antigen because that antigen, by which we simply mean something which is generating an important immune response, has been injected into you. That's a vaccine. Or because you've been infected, but the, the spike glycoprotein, the spike entry weapon of the virus is the antigen here. The, the number of times that your immune system encounter, encounters that, you know, um, predisposes you to make a, a stronger response. So three doses of vaccine is better than two. Three doses of vaccine. And then if usually because your antibody titer sort of dropped off, we call this antibody waning, you got another infection, then that will give you a, 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 a subsequent boost. We also have to think about, this is something people in my lab are very interested in, the, the breadth of the antibody response. So um, almost everybody in the United Kingdom now um, would be uh, able to neutralize and get rid of the ancestral uh, virus, the, the, the one that emerged in, in, in Wuhan um, at the latter part of 2019. Um, the question, of course, is not because we're not because that virus is dead now, is what about the, the variants that are arising now and the variants that we expect to rise in the future? There, it's a question of the breadth of antibody response. In other words, the, the power of your antibody response to neutralize variations on a theme of spike, if you like. Um, and some people seem to be better at doing this than others. But, but again, what's clear is the more times you are exposed to the antigen, either in the form of vaccination or vaccination plus infection, the broader your antibody response becomes. So it's not just that you're getting more antibody. Actually, the antibodies that you're producing are capable then of uh, getting rid of a wider variety of, um, uh, of SARS-CoV-2 variants. Which should then make it harder for the virus, for new variants to evolve that can escape, immune escape variants. Uh, absolutely. And, and the other thing is, in a way, it, it, it um, forces, one doesn't like anthropomorphizing viruses, um, but it sort of, <laughs> I will just, just briefly, it sort of forces the virus to make compromises. So if the virus has got to have lots and lots of changes in its spike to make it resist antibodies, that might make it a slightly less efficient spike in terms of entering cells. And we may be beginning to see hints of this already in the sort of subsequent Omicron variants from BA2. So there are some suggestions that BA4 and BA5, which are variants that are second in South Africa, they may well come and, and cause a, a substantial wave here, but we don't know that yet. That th There might be some degree of compromise to the efficiency with which the virus is, 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 is replicating. I, this is a bit sort of speculative at the moment, so you, I, I, I can't be certain of that. But, but this is, the, as it were, the direction of travel. The more immunity there is in the population, the more difficult it is for the virus, the more the virus then has to make compromises, if you like, to, to mean that it will infect. Um, but perhaps it will replicate slightly less well. And that's good from our point of view, because that will mean that immunity is, um, uh, you know, protecting us against uh, severe variants. And, and this is why I think it's, it's now very likely that SARS-CoV-2 will become the fifth you know, coronavirus that, that we live with. But before that happens, to the extent that it's as little a threat as the other four, there will be the chances of this being it seem quite slim. There is, it's quite likely there will be further waves of further variants of concern. I think that's very likely. What's unclear is whether those subsequent variants of concern will be as nasty as Delta. Um, in other words, cause severe disease uh, with with the same sort of high-ish percentage that the Delta variant did. Um, 
the, the nightmare scenario, of course, is you get something which really escapes immunity to a, a much larger extent than we've seen even with, with, with Omicron and, and is as pathogenic as Delta. I don't think that nightmare scenario is likely, but it's certainly, I wouldn't say it's impossible. Um, this, by the way, is in a way is strangely quite a good argument for doing what we're doing at the moment, which is not putting any sort of societal society level restrictions in place, because it's not impossible those would have to be reintroduced under those under those sort of um, sort of nightmare circumstances. And obviously, you can't expect people, and I don't think it's reasonable or sensible to try to to have these um, sort of stringent social distancing measures indefinitely. I mean, that, that goes quite against, you know, what we are as a species, which is a very sort of, you know, parche, the few uh, people who wish, wish to live as, as Carthusian monks. Um, uh, we're a social species. I mean, we, we do interact a lot and we benefit from that. So I think we're not quite ignoring it in the UK, but but um, to a large extent, we're ignoring it. That may well be the correct strategy. In terms of those societal methods, I mean, other things which have been dropped, for example, that, you know, there used to be free PCR testing provided by the NHS, and that programme has been wound up now. So presumably that does make it harder to keep track of cases. Maybe it doesn't matter if we don't keep track of cases, if it's not, most of them are not that severe disease. But does it also make it harder to track new variants does it mean that we will be further behind than we might otherwise be if there is a new wave? So, so the answer is yes, it does make it slightly harder to track. But there are other, are other systems in place in the UK which are systematically testing people by PCR. So we, we, we're collaborating with the UK Health Security Agency, AXA, on, on the SIREN study. It's a very interesting study of healthcare workers where people are systematically sampled. So, uh, you know, p things will be picked up via that mechanism. There's the Office of National Statistics survey, which is is continuing, uh, uh, which which tells us with high degree of accuracy about prevalence uh, across the UK. And then in terms of diagnostics, I think people have got much braver um, with the lateral flow devices. Now, admittedly, these are no longer being provided routinely for free, um, but the lateral flow devices are, are very useful, actually, as it turns out, diagnostically, because they have a very low false positive rate. So um, it, it's a question of what you do with the resources that you're wishing to, to spend on this. You can always argue for more resource to be devoted to this. If, you're, if you were going to put in place something which would really tell us more about new variants, you might actually be funding sequencing in other parts of the world. I mean, the UK is very well covered compared to many other parts of the world still for, for sort of um, sequencing of, of, of virus and, and so on. So I, I think the approach is certainly not an unreasonable one in terms of what uh, the UK is doing at the moment. And, you know, there's within a limited healthcare budget, there's, there's many other things which, you know, we do need to spend resources on, not least, in fact, some of the antiviral uh, uh, medications, which can be, you know, relatively expensive. So it, it, it's a reasonable approach, I think, is the long and the short of it. And in terms of testing that obviously the, the healthcare workers, well, everyone, up to a point, well, maybe not everyone, but especially healthcare workers who have symptoms or who test positive should not go to work. Are healthcare workers still being tested for free? Yes, so health, yeah. yes and it depends on the, the precise circumstance. So people who are still de dealing very routinely, so let's say on a transplant ward, are still being monitored intensively. It's exactly what you'd expect. 
so yeah, there there are situations where we we, we do need to con continue with testing. And those are basically in healthcare settings, and particularly when you're dealing with highly immunosuppressed individuals. And what are the consequences for that in terms of staff shortages currently in terms of the NHS coping? You, I mean, there are stories in the news about people having to you know wait hours for an ambulance and not getting beds and and how much. I mean, obviously, some of that has just to do with chronic underfunding of the NHS over over many years but how much does where we are in the covid pandemic contribute to that to those yeah so th there are three things so one is exactly as you say it's we, we're not spending a huge amount of money uh, compared to many other um, uh, nations on healthcare. the second is the 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 backlogs that the covid pandemic has generated but, i mean the nhs didn't fall over in terms of being able to deliver emergency care, but it was very substantially compromised in its ability to deliver certain kinds of emergency care and very substantially compromised in its ability to deliver elective care. And so the, those sort of backlogs are, are now with us. And of course, if you if, if, you're, if you weren't able to deliver timely elective care, often this translates into um, emergency requirements. And also the, down elective, the, line. the term so, elective care in implies it's something you can choose or not, but it's things non-emergency, right? So a hip replacement yes. would count as elective yes. care, but it's, it's necessary. It's not It's not really something you can... It's not elective in the sense, take it or leave it, kind of. I mean, they are necessary, but they're not emergency. Well, very very often that, that is the case. I mean, uh, and there's a whole, there'll be a whole variety of, uh, of examples, you know, where, where screening procedures, for example, were compromised and, and what have you. So there's that and then there's the sort of as it were the direct consequences of people with covid not not being able to to turn up to work which of course is is, is the right thing to do in a healthcare setting that's much less bad now than it was you know a, a month or two ago when we were a, a sort of another peak of of the second type of of, of omicron but it's still a it's still um a, a proportion of the problem i wouldn't like to tell you exactly what This is the LRB podcast. If you enjoy listening to it, you'll probably enjoy reading the London Review of Books. To subscribe from just £1 per issue, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link below. Looking ahead to the autumn is there likely to be another round of booster vaccinations going into the winter season, perhaps along with the same time as flu jabs? I think the big question there is what do you boost people with? At the moment, we are sticking with the um, vaccines all based on the ancestral, so so-called Wuhan strain. That's been highly effective um, and even with the Omicron strain uh, after three doses is, is, is effective. My expectation is there will be updated vaccines by the the, the autumn and winter, and that 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 the the extent to which those are used over the ancestral ones, I don't know. The question is, what what would you put in an updated vaccine? Well, I was going to ask that. Would you so, would it be as with flu? Is this right that with a with a flu vaccination, you sort of monitor the variants that there are, and you take a educated guess about what the variant of flu is likely to be and vaccinate people against that so would you do that with or would you say well you've already got these this kind of spike protein people are quite well protected against 
and this other kind of spike protein, if it were to mutate in this way, these are the places that we'd, we're we unprotected. So could you sort of anticipate a, a different shaped spike that would... This will probably become the case over time that there will be, it may well be the case that we end up with multiple different variants of, of SARS-CoV-2 circulating in the future. Um, obviously, influenza has been in the human population for much, much, much longer. And when we talk about the influenza vaccine, uh, usually you're talking about four different uh, versions of flu, two flu A and two flu B. And flu A and flu B are really very different viruses to each other. I mean, they diverged a very long time ago. Uh, and then with influenza A, you've got, um, you, you know, two very antigenically distinct types. So you've got the um, H1N1 types and the H3N2 types. And these are really quite different in terms of the way in which they, those um, those spike glycoproteins, those glycoproteins look to the immune system. So th there's much more divergence within flu. You know, it's really not just one entity. With SARS-CoV-2, it's still one entity. So there's much less divergence and it's only been in the human population since 2019 that said there clearly have been you know some, you know adaptations of the of the spike and my guess is that yeah it will become necessarily desirable to change the composition of the vaccine either to reflect uh, what we expect to be the dominant um, uh, circulating versions of the virus or simply to try to get as broad a coverage of all the um variants that we've known about in the past and, and exactly which of those two would be the best strategy i don't know um and uh, you know people are trialing these things at the moment and, and looking at uh, neutralizing antibody responses as a proxy so watch this space i think will we get it right i don't know because we don't always get the flu vaccine composition right either but um you know one likes to think it's better than an awful lot better than than nothing well it clearly is i mean in terms of looking at deaths from flu-related deaths since the large vaccination programs were introduced. I mean, they've plummeted, haven't they? It's made a huge difference. Yes. I mean, it's clearly very successful and a very low-cost and uh, um, uh, you know, highly efficacious intervention. And in terms of other things which have been... I mean, perhaps this is veering slightly towards the sensationalist end of the of the news media, but there's the stories of these uptick in hepatitis cases among children and the, the idea that, that might be yeah. connected to covid so uh, there's a lot of speculation about what exactly that is and some of the speculation is not particularly helpful um there's a, a very sort of useful report that's been produced by uh AXA, UKHSA, um looking at these cases at, at this moment it's fair to say nobody really knows what's going on it doesn't look as though it's a sort of straightforward case of any sort of viral hepatitis. That's not what the, the histology specimens look like. The, the theories that are being investigated is it could be a problem, which is that with a particular variant of SARS-CoV-2, that your immune system is primed in a strange way in some children, meaning that when they get a subsequent infection, they have this auto-inflammatory, autoimmune response in the liver. That's That's one possibility. Another possibility could be nothing to do with SARS-CoV-2, but simply that you've got a circulating um, strain of another virus, possibly an adenovirus, possibly an adenosociated virus. Really unclear if either of these had anything to do with it at the moment, but it, it could be that you've got uh, something which wasn't really circulating very much because of the uh, lack of social um, uh, mixing and so on in the past two years that now is and is affecting children at a slightly later age. That's another possibility. 
I'm not directly involved in any of this, uh, so I don't have any sort of special, unique insight. It, it, it is a, a serious uh, condition, though, for, for these children, some of whom have required liver transplants, and some of whom very sadly have died. So, it, you know, it is a serious thing that people are looking into. Exactly what's causing it, whether it's SARS-CoV-2 related or not, I think is unclear at the moment. But it's still a relatively small number. Of- yes, it's still a relatively small number of cases. But I mean, you know, these are young children with a very severe disease. So I don't wish to minimise this in any way. This is a, a very sort of tragic for those families, those, those children affected. So, it, you know, it, it is a, a substantial concern right now. But like I say, we really don't know if this is something which is SARS-CoV-2 related or not. It, it might be, it might not be. You mentioned earlier the question of funding other countries monitoring and testing programs there's also the question of in terms of obviously in in western europe vaccination rates are very high in terms of that you know as you've been saying since the beginning of this and as many people have been saying since the beginning of this we need to vaccinate it's it's a it's a pandemic it's a global problem the vaccination programs testing programs all of that have to be looked at on a global scale how are those programs going are the other other countries catching up well i mean it's remarkable to me actually the the biggest failure almost is is in china right where they they have this extremely effective um almost repressive um you know regime in place which allowed them to entirely suppress viral replication right you you know after it had then unfortunately already got out of hand in wuhan but uh, and then, of course, we've we've developed highly effective vaccines. The the, the vaccine uptake in uh, you know elderly people in China and also in Hong Kong has been very poor, and has meant that they've had very severe problems even with the Omicron variant. So that's an enormous failing. I mean, I don't think we'd be <laughs> we'd not be volunteering to send resources to China. That <laughs> a Coles to Newcastle situation, but um, it, it's. It, Perhaps what we're learning is it's maybe not just about resources. Perhaps it's much more about the way in which you communicate with people, the way in which you can reassure people that, that you know this is the right thing to do, uh, how you sort of um, get around sort of anti-vaccination type um, lunacy. You think if you're prepared to lock a city the size of size of Shanghai, lock everyone in their houses, that even I mean compulsory vaccination seems a less. You say, we'll let you out if we can jab you on the way. I don't know. I mean, obviously, I mean, it's easy for me to say. I yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's an extraordinary policy failure from the from the from from China. I mean, there's, there's no doubt about it. I'm certainly not an expert in what they ought to be doing differently. I mean, obviously, very different sort of considerations apply. It, it may be that. I mean, the other thing to say, of course, is that the, the the vaccines developed in China are probably quite a lot less effective than the mRNA vaccines, for example. So there, there may also be an element of that. And uh, yeah, so so, so it's um, it seems to me, as it probably does for everyone else, absolutely awful that you're shutting down a city like Shanghai when you could have just vaccinated people, right? I mean, mm. but for the, the Omicron was first spotted in, was well, first isolated in South Africa, but so presumably that in South Africa, for example, those programs are continuing much as they are, uh, ever were in a new variant. Yes, and there's a there's a number of very dedicated South African virologists who obviously don't have quite the same resources that we do in in the UK, but who are doing a very sort of good job of putting out uh, information on these 
newer newer um, uh, versions of Omicron. Um, it would be nice if that was also the case in other parts of Africa and in other resource poor settings. Obviously, South Africa is relatively speaking for for sub-Saharan Africa, you know, much wealthier uh, nation. But yes, it, it would make much more logical sense to yeah. I mean, it sounds as if with in the UK certainly the level of vac- vaccine coverage and exposure to to the virus itself that even if there is another wave or even when there is the next wave comes we are more or less prepared for it we will be it was less likely to take us by surprise we will the nhs will be able to cope that's certainly my expectation uh, like i say the, the nightmare scenario that you get something which is you know very substantially more different than the omicron and, and still very pathogenic that's not impossible but it doesn't look to me likely at this stage. Yeah. And in terms of lessons learned, I mean, if another, a completely different kind of virus were to break out and cause a, a pandemic, I mean, this is a slightly far-fetched example perhaps, but there are these half dozen cases of monkeypox that have now been discovered in the UK. There may be. If there were to be a, a mass or some other unknown disease, some if, if Ebola were to mutate, and I know it's all very unlikely, but some other kind of a different kind of virus. Do you think that the the experience of the COVID pandemic means governments will respond quicker, more effectively to a different kind of, of pandemic, a pandemic of a different virus? One would like to think that a response would be much better. There's always a danger of, of generals fighting the last war. And I think actually in the UK response, because of the uh, 2009 um, influenza pandemic, which was a very mild virus compared to what it might have been, where the majority of people who got infected with that H1N1 strain of influenza were in fact asymptomatic or very, very mildly symptomatic. So it, it did cause a, you know, a wave of hospitalizations, did cause a wave of people having to go to the intensive care, but it was very, very small proportion of the people that got infected. And there was a lot of idle talk and idle speculation, I think, at the beginning of this um, SARS-CoV-2 pandemic that, oh, maybe lots of people would be infected and they'd be asymptomatic. Of course, some people have been infected asymptomatically with SARS-CoV-2 and they've, they've passed it on and that means it's more difficult to detect and more difficult to to sort of um, to, to isolate cases without proper testing, which was a massive problem in early 2020. But the great majority of people were symptomatic, are symptomatic when they get SARS-CoV-2, even if they get SARS-CoV-2 after vaccination. And of course, a substantial fraction, as we know, were very, very severely unwell or died. And I think our sort of um, slightly lackadaisical attitude right at the beginning of the of the pandemic was very, very damaging for the UK's response. So, yes, it could be that we have a different virus which causes a pandemic where the mode of transmission is different or um, where it's much more difficult to find a vaccine. I think that's the that's the other sort of very big one. The. The, the good thing about coronaviruses is, is that a small amount of neutralizing antibody, in other words, antibody it will bind to that uh, entry weapon of the virus and stop it getting into cells is very effective. So that means vaccination is a, a, a very successful strategy. Other viruses, it's much more difficult to develop vaccines. So there's a, a virus called respiratory syncytial virus, where it's been you know decades before we've had anything like an effective vaccine. Respiratory syncytial virus still causes a lot of disease in in small children. And if we were to get a a virus that was like respiratory syncytial virus, in other words, much more difficult to develop a a vaccine, but was more pathogenic and and could infect adults, 
would we be complacent and say, oh, we just, you know, we locked down a little bit and, you know, reduce social uh, interactions and then we'll get a virus and a, a vaccine for this virus in 100 days? Well, maybe we wouldn't, right? Maybe that, that would be a, a big problem then if we, if we had the same, as it were, playbook that we've used for SARS-CoV-2. Hopefully, it will encourage governments to be very proactive about this kind of thing, even with something that doesn't appear to be likely to cause a, a serious problem, like you know, monkeypox that you that you mention. Um, and I must say, that if you if you make the mistake of looking at sort of UK virology Twitter on monkeypox, you, what you'll mostly see is a series of extremely bad puns on 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 various different species of ape, um, rather than this being oh dear this is a, a an enormous uh, sort of concern it's going to start another uh, uh, pandemic. M monkeypox is is transmitted but you, rather inefficiently between humans, requiring um, what might euphemistically be described as very close social interaction in the majority of cases, which seems to be the case in the UK. And I suppose one of the things which we hope wouldn't happen in the case of another pandemic, that sense at the beginning that it's all happening a long way away. It's in China or even when it was initially, this sense it can't happen to us. It can't happen here in the way that the first SARS pandemic didn't really affect the UK and Western Europe. That, that sense of we are somehow magically protected by our economic status or geographical position, that sense one would hope won't be that that the complacency that comes from that there were there was undoubtedly an extraordinary complacency um based on geographical distance and i don't know some sorts of prejudice perhaps um that wasn't simply the responsibility of government i must say you know there was very much a sense of oh it's over there and and as you point out even when it was in italy people were going oh will it come here well <laughs> i don't know if you've heard of aircraft <laughs> take people all over the place you know it's so so it was an extraordinary thing to, to to see that unfolding where you could see exactly what was going to happen and everyone acting as if it were completely normal and that's all sort of where we're getting i mean there is a sense it sometimes seems people are getting tired bored complacent now but or maybe they're not because as you say actually so many people do have immunity that 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 exponential spread is not happening is not going to happen so in a sense we're right to be relatively complacent about it now compared to two years ago but it's important that we don't forget what a very serious illness it was at the beginning you know a couple of months ago the world health organization estimated that the true death tolls may be around the 15 million mark i mean it is one of the most deadly diseases that has ever struck humanity yes in terms of number of people killed and that's absolutely the the case obviously it's not anywhere near what you know the black death was in terms of the proportion of people that died but one likes to think that healthcare has advanced at least a little bit since the 14th century i completely agree with you we must also not forget that there are still you know a substantial minority of people who have seriously compromised immunity for whom this is still a, a, a potentially very serious problem um i I think, and I'm involved in this to some extent in, in, in the UK, that we're doing a reasonable job of delivering antiviral medications to people, uh, to the most appropriate people in the most sort of timely way. And, and that, I think, is probably um, doing a lot of good. 
um, we're going to need to keep this up. We may need newer antiviral medications to, to come on board um, if the, the variants continue to change, which is, is what we expect. So this is going to remain a substantial problem in healthcare for many years. What I don't anticipate it doing is causing the same um, sort of societal level threat, threat of a sort of collapse in healthcare that, that we were certainly at risk of in 2020 and in early 2021. So it's a completely different phase in the pandemic. It doesn't mean the problem's completely gone away and certainly we shouldn't be sort of complacent about it. But the necessity that we had previously of really putting in societal level restrictions to try and stop the spread of the infection is, is really no, that there's, the, there's no logical case for that, in my opinion, at the moment. Rupert Beale, thank you very much. Thank you. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes and the music is by Kieran Brunt. <laughs>